0: back to Neil Haley's show and I'm so excited about always talking and, and pr- bringing awareness to charities and uh, I'm really excited to uh, can you imagine you're a novice or a seasoned songwriter but no one has ever heard any of your music you've written uh, so I'm really excited to have my two guests on Pam and Paige today and we're going to talk about this uh, it's it's such an important thing and we're going to talk about musical charity. So I appreciate you both stopping by. And it's so important. And I've, I've again, had this conversation about songwriting on one of my podcasts and radio shows and TV shows before, especially uh, about the songwriting show that was on NBC. I ha- highlighted that on my mm-hmm. on my network at one point in time and how we really don't know about songwriters and the challenges they go for. So I appreciate you two both stopping by. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you. You know, so Paige, how and why did you come up with the idea for Musical Cherries?
1: Well, I'm in the dog business and I retired and I always knew music would be in my retirement uh, future. So um, I met Pam a few years ago and Pam is an absolute incredible entertainer, musician, songwriter, uh, I've been involved in um, some of the circles of songwriters in Nashville and other places. And I'm not the, I'm an amateur, but I'm a good promoter and they're professionals and not very good promoters. So we kind of put each other together. And I said, I can do this. I can help do this. So we created musical charities. Our number one goal is to support our musicians. They've had a very hard few years. Um, because of the COVID and we want to put them back on stage in front of an audience and then whatever we raise, we help our communities.
0: Well, what I was talking to Pam off air is Paige, you are a promoter and congrats and you (laughs) know, you had your business before any entrepreneur business owner knows how to promote because if you can't promote, you're not going to have a successful business. And so when True. you see specific things that are you're passionate about as entrepreneurs and business owners, we just flock to those people. We want to work with those people because we're excited. It's doing something that's giving back. It's doing something that there's a need in the community. And so, Pam, when Paige and you guys met, did you know it was a perfect fit and what you guys would do?
2: I think so, uh, because uh, as we were talking earlier, we're sort of opposites in the sense that she's super confident and always positive. And I tend to almost apologize if I'm going to invite someone. Out. You know, I'm always like, well, you know, you'll probably be busy. You probably, oh, you probably wouldn't want to come, but it might cost too much. Well, I could see if I could get you in for, you know, and Paige is like, just, she's like, you like live music events. You need to come to this. These guys are great. So we had a complete opposites attract for uh, working together. I mean, I've told her from the beginning, Paige, you'd make a great manager, you know because she has that very thing that I don't, and I don't like to be pushy. I don't want it, not that you're pushy, Paige, but, you know, I don't <laughs> like to, I'm always afraid of- pushy. <laughs> I'm pushy. I'm always afraid of, of bugging people, you know? And so, and you got to have that forward sort of, there's a real there's a real um, art to being able to positively invite someone to an event and make them feel great about why they're coming uh, and that's maybe what you're you're so special at Paige, is she's allows people to give back and yet get something at the same time and in doing that she supports the the, the songwriters as well and then all of these generous people who come to the events are very generous with the songwriters and they they purchase our CDs they you know they want to know where they can see us again and so it's really a, Uh, This is a cliche, but it's really a win-win situation for everybody. All
0: right. So, and Paige, when you met Pam, did you think that you needed somebody that is known in the industry to be part of this, to help you with how that partnership worked?
1: I never knew before I met Pam, I never, ever, ever thought I would be involved in music. Um, I was a closet musician. (laughs) Um, Didn't really go anywhere never expected to go anywhere with my music it's just a hobby but if you ever hear Pam perform I don't know if you know her background and uh she's so wonderful
0: go ahead and tell us her background I'm intrigued by (laughs) that
1: okay I'll tell it because she won't so um (laughs) Pam's been a musician ever since you know she was a little girl and her father taught her how to play guitar and banjo and she's just thrived she's a great banjo player um, she was yes, go the, on, go on. Yes. She was the lead singer of <laughs> Wild Rose, which is a Grammy-nominated band, uh, all women's band back in the '90s. Uh, they've been on Hee Haw. They've been on all <laughs> kinds of TV shows. She was on uh, um, the Grand Old Opry for four years with Porter Wagner. Um, she has several CDs out. She's she's just incredible. Right now, she has a number two song on Bluegrass Unlimited. Uh, it's number two on the charts. And she's getting ready to release a new song next week, which is an incredibly inspirational song. I just really admire her. And I know that people that I know would enjoy listening to her. And people are always looking, if you tell me to go out and find, you know, see somebody perform, I'm like, yeah, what if they're not any good? You know, so when somebody is excited about somebody and so said, you can't miss this person. Um, that's what I try to do with people I know. You can't miss it. You know, when Pam performs and Pam's friends perform and her band, Wild Rose came and performed. And um, she, anyway, so there's, she'll say opposite that she's not that great, but she's exceptional.
0: All right, so you. so I just am impressed. So Paul, I think Paul, you told me before you're a musician, right? You do some music, right? I, yeah, I'm,
3: I'm about the world's okayest guitar player. <laughs> yes, I, I, okay I, I am yeah i am not uh, any uh expert i follow uh, i'm good at rhythm but uh lead uh, if it's not blues i i can't do it on oh. lead. so but but um yeah no i i grew up in the 60s so um i'm a my middle name is music anyway so yeah. um P- uh, pam and page i find this uh conversation extremely interesting and and i want to know more yeah. cool
1: well, thanks. That's nice to meet well, you. Pam's blues, but she's blues grass.
3: <laughs> That's good. That's good.
2: Yeah, so. I love, I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't understand all the scales of blues. I hear what to do, but I don't know what I'm doing, um, which is kind of a, the way you grow up playing bluegrass. You do it all by ear or by taking lessons, <clears throat> which is what I started doing at 14, learning how to play the banjo. And uh, and then you just get people to show you licks. Is that how you learned with guitar too?
3: You get, got people to show you licks. Uh, are you talking to me?
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, no, I I actually had ten years of uh, of training.
4: But oh. That
3: that just got me to the okay okay <laughs> part. Um, I, I don't think as a musician you ever stop learning. So I you know it, it's a yeah it, and there's so many different ways to 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 learn and to do and and uh, and if you're playing it. I'm listening, that's for sure. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm more inspired these days than I have been ever in my right. life. And, and that's, who would have dreamed it at this age after a career in music and then a career in uh, academia. I work at a college, I'm close to retiring, but um, I'm, and I've just found a new music team with a church that I'm playing with. And one of the women is a uh, Irish flute player. And so we're working up these old hymns with banjo and Irish flute. And it's so fun to create. And and I've got this new album coming out. And we're, it's just a blast to be in the studio again, you know. And I'm kind of glad it's happened like it has, Inch by Inch, which is the name of my new single. But because it makes you appreciate every little thing in every phase, instead of everything happening at once. And then you... Uh, and it's just been really... I'm really thankful for the struggle, you know. Uh, it makes everything super sweet when it happens and it makes you very sensitive and understanding toward other people who are struggling. And uh, what greater gift could we be given in life than to be, become a better person along the way and then therefore be able to relate to our audience better and then maybe write a song about that mm. and share and connect at these shows. It's just really a, it's a wonderful place to be right now.
0: So Paige, Great. when the vision after getting, you know, Pam together, would you again you said the need was that a lot of these artists have been hurt based on specific things that have happened and also how songwriters in general are not compensated correctly for their work that's what kind of made it so Paige like what does the what does this charity do in a way to help the artists explain more about that
1: well our logo has three daisies on it and each daisy represents something we could have put a dozen daisies on it but the One Daisy represents the musicians. They need people to create events, bring an audience. And if they're professionals, we pay them. A lot of times when you do a charitable event, they always ask the musicians to play for free. Right. We don't believe in that necessarily. They can always donate the fee back to the charity if they want. But so One Daisy represents the musicians that we're trying to promote. That's our number one mission is to get musicians back to playing again number two um, is the people that come they do donate that we either have ticket sales or just donations or whatever and they get a great show a very intimate very intimate we don't do thousand people shows you know sometimes we just have 50 people out there on a yard with their picnic tables and things like that Um, And so they benefit by getting some great music and their donations benefit because we always pick a beneficiary and it could be an individual that, you know, something has they're struggling and they need help paying a bill or they need a new hot water heater or something like that. Um, It could be a charity that's, you know, needs some support Um, It could be a a family or a business. And so we just pick a beneficiary and we never give them cash. We only give in-kind donations, meaning we purchase something for them or we pay a bill. So we have I I also had founded a um, animal rescue many years ago, and I'm retired from that called Mostly Mutt's Animal Rescue. And I ran that for 10 years. So we um, have called their veterinarian and just deposited money into their um, medical Fund, you know. So we've done animal rescue. We've done Trinity horse rescue. We've done farm animal rescue. We took $5,500 worth of musical instruments and art supplies to Scottish Wright Children's Hospital and just delivered them. We actually took one of the nurses shopping and gave her $3,000 to spend in the store because she knows what the kids want. You know, we don't really know what the kids want. And that was all in honor of a 28 year old who passed away. And when we asked what we could do for the family, they referred us to Scottish Rite. Um, And so the community benefits, it's there's nobody profiting off of this, you know, it's just basically helping the musicians pay their bills (laughs) and helping the community. And when Pam said win-win, it's really win-win-win. But you could also um, add the small businesses that we support. When we bought the musical instruments, we used a privately owned um, music store, and they certainly benefited. Uh, we used um, the school box, which a friend of mine owns, and that's all school supplies. They have struggled over the past few years, you know. Um, and so that when we took the person shopping, that the nurse shopping with $3,000, we spent it at a friend of mine's uh business and so they benefited so it re- there is just uh, it's a wonderful concept and we'd love to take it nationally you know um, we are going to try to specialize in house concerts which are very intimate you can have your own party at your own house everybody in the world has a birthday
5: That's a so,
1: idea. so we would like you to have your own birthday parties um musical charities will bring in the musician um We will help you uh, organize the party. You know, you decide the beneficiary, you get to choose who benefits. And we just help you have a great party and give back to your community.
0: And the great thing, Pam, is paying the artists, right? So I too was like you in a way, Uh, I'm a former professional wrestler, Pam, and that I performed in front of smaller audiences and some nights didn't get paid wrestling, okay?
6: Yeah. Oh, wow. So,
0: so you do the independent wrestling feel. That would be something for you even to expand. The pro wrestlers aren't getting paid. That's for truth, and that they should all be doing charity events and getting paid for their right. their exploits. And so, I wrestled down south, Jerry the King Lawler, and different things. Forty dollars a night there. Burt Prentice in Arkansas, fifty dollars a night, and that was about twenty five years ago. But I'm thinking you should hear the story of The Rock. But a lot of these wrestlers now they're wrestling for free as other people in bands. So. Pam this is so important for professionals to get paid right isn't it frustrate you Pam when you hear that what do you
2: what th- will you come and play for free that
0: <laughs> what does what frustrate me to hear well no, that artists aren't getting paid to perform as professionals
2: well I actually have always been paid as a professional but I've never gotten rich from it well,
0: what about I've the been... other ones are starting and they're professionals and they did this thing that's helps these artists to get gigs and to get paid while I'm working for free.
2: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm all for people being allowed to go out and play for free if they want to, because they mm-hmm. feel that it will help network their music. It will help network their musician uh, connections for other with players. They might meet someone they can form a band with. Uh, I don't think we should stop that. And Tennessee is a right uh, ha, as a state where you can do that, but, um, as a musician, that's part of the American Federation of Musicians. I also really respect that our, our, our musician musicians, union has really rallied to get a good f- fair pay when you do play, uh, events or on TV. So I've always, when I moved here in my late twenties, um, you know, and joined the union, I've, I've always just taken, um, The music thing really seriously, and yeah, I I would go out. We used to drag a horse trailer behind us and play in bars in Kansas or wherever. We would literally—it was so much fun. We would just (laughs) drag our—we had a—we had a van, and it—it—it. What did it do one time? It hyper—I forgot what it was called. Vapor locked. It vapor locked on us on our way to Canada, (laughs) and we had to ride all the way back with. with, with of the, the hood was completely off. The hood was in the back with us. And so here's our engine exposed and we're, we're hauling a horse trailer with all of our gear in it. And oh, when you God. look back, it's like, those are the funnest times really. There's oh some- my
0: gosh. I remember the days where I would go wrestle in Canada with Rhino and all these guys in our WWE and we would travel and we'd be in a school bus to go all the way to almost the border. In Canada, where it's French speaking in Ontario. We didn't go. Yeah. And it is like 17 hours from London, Ontario to wherever. I remember these travel. But I remember these days. I remember the traveling from Grand Rapids all the way to St. Louis, then St. Louis to Chicago. And yeah, it was. And
2: and you do. You don't mind doing it for a little of nothing when you're young, because you're all living together, maybe in a house together and your rent's only. Twenty five dollars a month. If you that's do, train. I live in,
0: We live in a hotel together, and that's yeah. what we do. And we're we're because we're wrestling. We're doing our dream. We're doing that. Yeah, we're young. Right. That, that our dream and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah so, but,
2: but no, I think that I've always respected Paige a lot with the musical charities events. In that, you know, I've even told her, I, I you don't need to pay me. You know, I want to help you grow this and this and, that. and she's like, no, absolutely. You, you know, you need to be reimbursed your gas and your time. and and by you coming it's helping bring a crowd in and raise money and so like i think the big term there is respect treating songwriters and artists with and like you say as a wrestler with respect for what you do for your art and not just try to take advantage of you right. and you know take a cut you know can, can you take a first gig i ever did as a one of my first gigs as a as a woman who had my own band went out on my own and this guy wanted me to t- take a cut on our first gig. And I had, and I, I shouldn't talk about it. It re- really hurt my feelings and it made me mad because I, I was basically going to make zero because I was going to pay all my guys, you know, women and men in my band. And we, you know, we'd taken the hall, we'd gone to Florida and it just, it was a really rainy, cold day. And, and so they didn't have a great turnout and they didn't go to the bigger artists that were on the show, like George Jones and no, the we Lewis, but they, were, they were bigger way. artists. But the little guys, which I was one of the little guys in their book, first thing they do is try to get you to take a cut, you know. And and, and um, you hear they've signed a contract, doesn't do any good. What, are you going to sue them? You know, and it's like, and, and so it, I took what they gave me, and my band all said, bam, here, we want you to have. And they all took a cut. And it, it really it made a bonding, wonderful kind of lasting impression with me, with my with my band. But, um, you know, it's just, I love that Paige... Respects the musician and and is thinking not only of the beneficiary but also of the musician as being a beneficiary. That hey, you know, they got to make money too, and they've struggled a lot through COVID. Many musicians oh, yeah. have about lost their rear ends during yeah, COVID. You know, I have a day job, so I <laughs> I did okay. But, a lot um, of
1: musicians um, also teach um, their instrument or voice, right. and they lost all of that income also, and then. Like, you know, uh sound people and the light people and the um um uh, you know the professional people that work with the uh the venues, the venues, you know. So we're happy to rent a venue. All of the uh the food
2: places, the food yeah. and beverage. All of it. They they all lose when there's nowhere to have an event. You know, there's so many people that lose, yeah.
0: No, it's, it's what I would say is this just brings me back. Musicians and art any type of artists professional wrestlers, anybody who performs the, the the challenges I have stories too. my first ever match didn't get paid. And one of my last matches, I never got paid where the promoter mm-hmm. took the money and ran. So we Jeez. all have those stories, we have so those cool. stories all the time. And they're like, where's so-and-so? And then one of the wrestlers was involved. Oh, I, I, I don't know where he is. And they ended up taking the cut. So it's just, it's part mm-hmm. of this. It's, it's tough and all that. So, Paul. Now, uh, did you ever play any gigs yourself, Paul?
3: Uh, no, I, actually, uh, all my uh, all my gigs were were really practicing on stage for you know it's kind of like an amateur night kind of thing. So I I didn't get paid for anything I did, but I did it for fun. So,
0: but so you were on stage. You've done you've done gigs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You know, and it's it's interesting. Another one of my clients, one of his in his bucket list was what he calls a wish list was to start a band and he did that so he just sent me the track text me yesterday it's all about our passion and living our passion in so many ways and i think page when you retired from your business you said i have to do something that's going to keep me busy you couldn't stay home that's the thing people can't stay busy no i just (laughs) i just just turned 50 and i'm never retiring because that's not what i want to do i want to do stuff that makes me happy and i love doing and that's the thing if you do you should never want to retire if you, you, if you yeah. do something you love the rest of your life and I'm glad you yeah, thought, well, I've
1: been very blessed. Uh, people say, Oh, you do everything. I said, no, I do tennis, dogs, and music. And what a beautiful life. I taught tennis for 35 years. Um, I've trained dogs. I've had a boarding facility. I did rescue. And now I get to, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to get my second CD out there, but it's just for fun, you know, a hobby. And, uh, And now I get to hang around musicians like Pam (laughs) Uh,
0: learn from a very good musician. So best place we can go Paige. And I guess, what is the call to action to people? Do you you want them to help donate to the charity, but also the whole idea of going national with these parties? Where can people go to check out information? Yeah.
1: Musicalcharities.org is the best way to uh, contact us, go into our gallery, look at some of the videos that we have of some of our events and, um you can you should be able to contact me personally through there um and i will i will be happy to help somebody just by a phone conversation or help them however if they need some musicians like uh we have we did what we would like to go national is what pam created a something called the big shebang s-h-e shebang and Good. we had a the first concert here um and it was with four of the top women in Country and Bluegrass, including Donnie Ulysses, who was 2022's Female Songwriter of the Year and um, song, Songwriter of the Year and Female Vocalist of the Year. Irene Kelly, who Alan Jackson has recorded some of her songs and she's had seven number one hits. And Becky Buller, who was um, first female to win Fiddler of the Year. And of course, Pam. And we had them all on stage together. That was a blast. And they're going to do another shebang in Nashville um, this the 31st, I believe, of this no, month? the 30th. 31st we playing, we're, we're part and of the so so if they want mm-hmm. Ten Pan South next Thursday, the 30th. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, but if anybody wants to do a big event, we can do some shebangs, you know, and that is just incredible because it's four songwriters that play their own songs and they back each other up musically and harmon, harmonies. And it was just... Oh, a it was big just shebang. A <laughs>
0: Oh, it sounds like some shibang, awesome yeah. things. People definitely need to contact you guys. It was a pleasure. You brought back some memories, Pam, today, right, about wrestling and uh, some of the horror stories and fun times as well.
2: Thank you for your enthusiasm and for your interest in talking yeah. to Paige and, and me. I, I appreciate it. Pam. No, I, so I'm much. enjoying it.
0: I enjoy this, and it's 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 good stuff. And uh, enjoy it, guys. Thanks again. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Thanks, for right, bye, watching the Neil Haley Show, we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm so I always love interviewing authors. And my guest today will discuss uh, true crime. Everyone loves it. best-selling author, Elmar, author of The Family Bones. How are you, Al? Thanks for stopping by.
4: I'm very well. Thank you for having me here.
0: All right, so tell me kind of this story of how you became a writer. What, how did that happen?
4: Uh, it's what every writer loves to talk about, right? Just uh, big dreams and lots of caffeine. Persistence. I, uh, I've i always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. I used to, of course, journal in my own little diary. And then um, when I was about nine years old, I kind of sneaked my way into an online writing forum for adults and started submitting stories alongside adults, just like regular stories. But I was pretty pleased when no one discovered I was a child. So I've been going at it ever since.
0: Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. Once you find something you're passionate about, you'll put more time and effort into what you get paid sometimes for as well, which is 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 unfortunate. When we can put our passion into making money, it's the greatest thing in the world. And when authors have success and keep growing, that's the process. But it's a grind, right? When you first started out as an author, you're not like, okay, I'm going to be able to get published, get this going. It's a process, right? It was not easy to get published, right?
4: No, far from it. I was writing for a good decade before I got my literary agent. And then after I signed with her, then things rolled fairly quickly. We signed up my publisher within a couple of months. <clears throat> but um, it, from what I had heard, actually, it takes around five to six years from the time that you finish your book to actually getting that book published. And that is absolutely in line with my my debut journey, my debut novel that published in 2020. It took me five years by the time that it was done.
0: Five years. Wow, and so five years, and
4: I was writing novels for ten years. So, how like did you
0: reach out? How did you get that literary agent? What are they looking for? I know things have changed now, but what are they looking for?
4: Yeah, everything's changed now. It happened so quickly. I mean, um, what I initially I was querying for a good many years, and I was all over the Twitter writing scene. The Twitter writing community used to be very active and uh, supportive, and um, with just a few Twitter pitch parties. Now there's a great deal and that's great, there's lots of opportunity, but initially there was only like four or five. And so I entered DV Pit, uh, hashtag DV Pit, which is still around and it's for um, books and uh, other, a whole genre, like a, a crazy variety of genres, of uh, books ranging from thrillers, what I write to picture books. Um, and you just pitch your book in 140 characters and then literary agents or publishers can like your tweet and then invite you to submit your manuscript. Uh, to that publisher, to that literary agent. And so that's what I did. And my agent loved my book and signed me and the rest of his
0: history. Wow. Okay. So it's about networking. That's so it's a great thing. Nowadays, I'm sure it's more and more, you got to get yourself out there and be seen even. And it's harder to get a literary agent without a following, right? You, when you were doing it, it's a different animal. You were busting your hump on Twitter. So I guess Twitter was your thing, right? Following back, following the right person, putting together the right content, getting yourself out there. And that's, that's hard. It's not easy for lots of people to do it. And I was in the grind in my radio show and podcast for over 13 plus years to get to where I am today and with the radio and TV and continue to grow and having conversations, but you can't sit idle. So I think that's a great plan is that just, if you think things are going to be come to you and be handed to you, it's not the case.
4: No, far from it. And I would say like the key thing that you just said that I would echo is you can't sit idle. You have to continue to pursue your craft or pursue your passion, whatever that is, and trust that there, you know, your goals will follow. You know, I'm kind of a big believer in like manifesting, like put it out there, make it it a part of your daily grind. And then it will come to you. Your efforts will lead to that fruition. But also, I would say you don't need a massive platform in writing. People still ask me that. I actually just saw a Twitter thread the other day that I waited on. You don't need to have thousands of followers for a literary agent to take note. You really need just a good manuscript. And I had several several thousand followers by the time that I did get signed, but that's just because I was making friends across Twitter. No one that I knew put me in touch with my agent. It was purely through this Twitter pitch party, which is still very successful in matching diverse books and authors to uh, literary agents and publishers.
0: Oh my! You know, so that's the wow. I'm just gonna, I'm just saying wow about this because that's good news for authors. But you still need social media. You still either you got to hustle. Yeah, yeah. So the bottom line is, you got to hustle. You got to be out there, and you got to show that Absolutely. you're worth the darn. If you're not, forget about it. It's not going to happen. And uh, I, I love the point you make about this, and don't have to have a huge, massive following, but you have to be engaged. You have to put yourself out there. And a lot of authors just don't want to, they want to stay right at the computer, right? they don't want to get out in those. I understand
4: up. that. Yeah, it's an introspective kind of solitary job, right? You are you are just with your computer or with however you write, maybe you write longhand, I only write my laptop, but you you are alone most of the time. And yet we are expected these days as authors to engage socially, to be across social media. And I will say a lot of people don't like that. A lot of writers who are tend to be more introverted don't appreciate social media. But while you don't have to have massive amounts of followers, you do, in most cases, need to show that you've invested in what works, which is engaging with readers. The easiest way through that is is social media.
0: I hope, Elle, you don't mind that we're talking about these other things because this is so valuable to my audience to talk <laughs> about these things. And you know, my not pleasure. the same specific questions because if part, your knowledge base, what you're bringing to the table is another thing to put in the back of my because I've worked with authors in in publicity and marketing for years in certain ways. And I've I've, and, and they've been guests on my show. And what I've learned is that authors really don't aren't told the right things. Everyone wants to create. We talked about off air about starting a podcast and said, beware, beware. If you're not told how to monetize your podcast, Run the heck away. And if they're saying you're going to monetize through ads, you're going to be one out of a billion that end up having instead of your really thing. But you start a true crime podcast, maybe you will become very wealthy because there are some (laughs) that do very well. So let's jump to how true crime. How did you get this whole true crime thing? Because everyone's into true crime.
4: Everyone is. It's ubiquitous. It's across every single dashboard you have, whether it's your Kindle or your streaming platform, your Netflix like shows push to you, ads push to you. You just can't escape it. And um, that's kind of where I took inspiration from my most recent thriller, which is just released The Family Bones. It's a book about psychopaths, rather, it's uh it's a book about a what happens in a mountain secluded mountain resort in eastern Oregon when a family reunion of psychopaths goes horribly wrong. And uh, when a true crime podcaster who obsesses over cold cases that the media missed, digs her heels into this cold case. Um, And it was really important to me to include true crime podcasters uh, in this novel, because it's such a a phenomenon, right? And I also in my book, The Family Bones, kind of touch on the capacity for good that true crime has. Initially, it was kind of poo-pooed as just Um, you know, a voyeuristic genre, people are just consuming this this tragedy. But it's also in the last few years, it's become this vehicle for change and for possibility in, in finding answers for cold cases, which I think is amazing.
0: Well, I think it's huge. And it's such a popularity in television. That's why people jumped on podcasting and books. And to be able to write about this stuff, because crime is just among us, it always happens. And we don't know about it unless we were you know, in working for the police or and brought into a jury, but this happens all the time. And to come up with these stories, do you want any of your books to become movies? Is that a goal of yours? Uh,
4: I mean, <laughs> do I wake up every day? Yes, yes it is. It's always a goal. And I have some definite film interest in Hollywood right now. I can't really talk about it, but it is like so nice to have that support and encouragement across the readership, across like the life cycle of a book. Um if anyone's interested please talk to my film agent.
0: <laughs> yes so, so you have a film agent too she so acquiring that film agent not easy either right?
4: She actually came with my literary agent um they're they're a, a partnership and so um it was it was really convenient for me to find my literary agent who I love who got my book immediately um and then also to learn that uh with her came along this incredible um agent icon in Hollywood who was able to help.
0: So what do you what tips do you think do you recommend specifically enough what you've learned so far with the literary agent for someone that wants to try to sell their book to as a manuscript
4: yeah and this is another great question it's always i always say it's about trusting yourself trust the sparkle that you have you there was something about your idea that shimmered that was brilliant to you and it struck you trust that it will strike someone else. It will strike another literary agent or readers down the line. The thing is, if you have a gut feeling about something, even if it doesn't work like five months down the line, like stick with it and keep mining that gold because it's there. If it was for you initially, it'll come back.
0: Okay. Now, I love the idea of psychopaths and all that. How did you kind of come up with the different characters that are psychopaths? What is your secret sauce to that? Are you you a fan of a lot of those kind of stories of the serial killers and stuff like that do you study those are you interested in those does that intrigue you
4: you know i think everyone has a serial killer phase uh especially with any of us who grew up with cable television you just couldn't avoid it i I think anyone who discovered the internet (laughs) so everyone has a moment where they go down that rabbit hole maybe they never do it again they regret it i had mine and uh, i've been paying attention ever since um i wrote this book, The Family Bones, um, after learning that we don't know much about the origins of psychopathy. Um, It struck me as really fascinating that this great big bad um, in the media, uh, you know, um, cognitive disorder um, is actually not as terrifying as Michael Myers makes it out to be. It's actually, it can be much more subtle. Certainly there's a a significant spectrum, Um, but many psychopaths are actually fairly high functioning and occupy um, seats of leadership at, at companies at CEOs or politicians or, you know, um, any other number of of places in society. And it's about those psychopaths and sociopaths learning to operate within our, our social norms, right? We all get tamed a little bit from childhood into adulthood. Psychopaths sometimes learn more or less how to go undetected as they're being tamed
0: <laughs> to society. And do they ever do they ever get tamed from your research?
4: That's the thing, and that's what inspired me about the family bones. There's no conclusive evidence. Sometimes treatment is considered rehabilitative and successful if you get to a child young enough. Um, but of course, to to even label a child as having psychopathic tendencies is very sensitive and very and very. Uh, it's done very sensitively because otherwise it can have dramatic effects. But it's um it's something that we don't know much about, and so I thought what we do know is that it can tend to run in families. So I thought, what would that look like in one family if there are multiple instances of psychopathy or sociopathy? And then through the generations, how would that affect those people? And then also the neurotypical, the people who don't present with psychopathy in any way, but and yet are surrounded by this environment of it. So uh, ergo, uh, the Erickson, the main family of my book, The Family Bones was born, um, and along with their generations of crime
0: now define a psychopath for me
4: psychopaths they are not like i said the the big uh looming figures in the doorway of movies like michael myers they are um individuals who lack an ability to empathize with others they are um people that have an unhealthy amount of selfishness certain amount of selfishness and and um self-centeredness is healthy it helps preserve us emotionally sometimes physically but psychopaths when lacking an incentive to do otherwise will always choose themselves, always, always. And so it can lead to a void of emotional connectedness to others. Um, and other times it can lead to accolades in the workforce <laughs> um, because they are single minded and determined and uh, go after goals, sometimes to the detriment of others.
0: So it's almost they have a really ego. So there's a lot of psychopaths out there that we just don't. When do they snap to become killers? Gosh, well,
4: that's the question. Is it nature or is it nurture? Um, evidence shows us, and let me also give a caveat. I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychologist. I have done an extensive amount of research, and I did teach psychology at one point abroad, but not a psychologist. But my research has shown that uh, we we don't actually know. There's a lot of emphasis on nurture on the environment if a psychopath uh, or someone with psychopathic tendencies uh is in a, in a traumatic environment, uh, in a neglectful environment, um, experiencing a lot of emotional distress and that can lead to the, the snap that occurs. Um, but most oftentimes it's, it's a lot less exciting. It's a lot less, um, Hollywood-esque.
0: All right. Well, this is such great information. Uh, I'm intrigued. I could talk to you all the time. You definitely should have a podcast. Uh, you, you definitely, uh, uh, hit all corners. I'm just intrigued by the psychopath because I thought of, I guess, I'm thinking of just somebody who's, uh, what, what is another word for psychopath, sociopath? And then also what are the ones that have lack of empathy also that people hate? Narcissist. There's a narcissist and a narcissist. psychopath. So what's the difference between a narcissist and a psychopath? Because I'm a semi-narcissist and I've been told that and I'll flat out say it. I'm, I'm in help because of my days in professional wrestling and then having specific egos at times and being an only child that have narcissistic tendencies. I'm working on that. I'll be honest, I'm working on that. I don't I think I'm a psychopath. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a psychopath. I'm not a sociopath. Uh, I, there was a really <laughs> interesting person that does work with psychopaths and sociopaths that was on my show, uh, Dr. Leslie Austin, who's amazing person that I had on when I did this marathon of interviews at this one event. And I'll bring her up because she absolutely knows how to work with those people. You got to run away from them. I'm not. But I'll say I have narcissistic tendencies. I think everyone has narcissistic tendencies. What do you absolutely. think of the, a narcissist and a psychopath?
4: Oh, gosh, a narcissist and a psychopath. The difference between them is probably a, a butcher knife, right? Like it, 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 it's <laughs> it's about what is the extreme. And in any case, it's not going to be something that we see in movies. It's going to be something much more subtle. It's not going to be, uh, you know, anything that is "quote unquote" sexy or like has been lauded across the media or like splashed across ha- headlines. It's narcissism is part of that healthy selfishness that we talked about. So I guess it, it really comes down to personal.
0: Okay, David Koresh, psychopath. Yes,
4: <laughs> comes down to your your personality. No, no, I was saying, I was saying,
0: David Koresh, psychopath.
4: Oh. Yes, exactly, yeah,
0: There's there's new Netflix on David Koresh, the whole- I did, yeah,
4: I haven't seen it myself, but it's it's crossed my, for you, my push.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure the ID channel is one of your favorite places as well.
4: Um, I haven't been there in many years, but I'm sure that all the algorithms are pushing that content to me as well.
0: No, if you had time, because you're busy writing, right? Writers don't watch things, right? They write, they create- Well, I mean,
4: actually- It depends on who you are. It depends on how you do things, but yes.
0: Okay. So, okay. So that's it. So we know, no. see, you're educating us. You're not a psychologist. You just play one on television. So, you know. Exactly.
4: Go to Dr. Austin.
0: (laughs) You have to look her up. She's interesting. All right. So best place to go, Amazon Everywhere Books, right? The Family Bones. sounds. AmazonBookshop.org,
4: Barnes & Noble, anywhere that booksellers sell books.
0: I'm ready for it to be on Netflix. That's it. I'm ready for it to be. You and me both. Yeah. See, I'm the connector that knows all these people, by the way. So I'll have to talk to your agent. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment.
4: Thank you, Neil.
0: You're welcome.
5: Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. Today's guest is Kelly Louth. She's the CEO and president of MindSpark, a nonprofit dedicated to transforming education through direct intersection with industry. She's also the CEO of Couragian, an ed tech company built to expand workforce literacy for all students. Prior to MindSpark, Kelly and a team opened up one of the first through K-8 public STEM schools in the country in 2009 and has expanded this model across the country with over 750 industry and community partnerships. Her passion is increasing diversity and gender equity in STEM. Kelly has presented her work and learning models nationally and internationally, including on the TED stage. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm really interested in your, um, you know, you're in the tech industry and you're a woman, and that's you know my background. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I reached out to you. You know, I've spent 30 years in tech, and it's very difficult as a woman to be successful. But you've only you've taken that. And not only made your career out of it, but you started your own several companies and you started a STEM school. You know, tell me where that passion comes from and and you know what kept you going down, you know, this path of starting this organization.
7: Yeah, I think that, you know, for me it started pretty early on when I went to college. I was really gung-ho about jumping into industry and uh, really jumped kind of two feet into biochemical engineering to do some really intentional research in the cancer space. And when I got there, I saw that there was just not a lot of women in that space. And it wasn't a very diverse field and just felt very unsupported in that career path and very unprepared um, for how to navigate through that. And so interestingly, I'd spent some time in college just helping with some summer camps. They were math and science camps at the time, helping girls connect to those content areas. And I just fell in love with helping them explore that content and get excited about the future and see themselves in the future and really became clear to me that they needed mentorship because they didn't have that. Um, And so that's when I decided that I could take my passion for science and tech and math and really apply it into the world of education and try to make a difference so that more girls didn't feel like me and that they could actually stay in the professions that they loved longer. That's
5: fantastic. So, in these schools, are they, are they strict? Are they all women, all girls?
7: In your K through eight, they actually are not. Um, but I am really proud to say that we have really turned around the paradigm of having more boys in STEM than girls. And so, when you visit one of our schools, you see ample amount of females in computer science classes, engineering classes. Um, we have a number of students that are, you know, typically underrepresented in STEM. That are um, taking really high-level math courses and science courses and getting complete mentorship and wraparound services for their success. So we really try to take this kind of old paradigm and model and turn it on its head um, and show people what's possible within all the constraints of a public school system.
5: That's great. How do how do you? I'm guessing that maybe from a young girl's perspective, they don't see you know, that there's limits, right? They're not seeing those limits, but in your running the school and partnering with other organizations and what you do, do you find, have you found any consistency of themes where um, there are restrictions or limitations on the girls in your school to get to the next level?
7: Absolutely. So you nailed it. So when they're young, I mean, we believe we can be anything that we want to be. And we see girls and and boys as well, but we see girls especially by you know second, third, fourth grade saying things like "I'm not good at math," "I'm not good at science," "I don't," "I can't do that project," "I can't be part of that." Um, and so early on, career literacy for us is essential. We start that at age five with them intersecting with women and um, you know industry partners and experts that look like them, come from similar backgrounds, have similar stories, because I think that as I work through the system in K-12, my students graduate excited. They actually, 84% of them believe that they can go into a STEM field. um, And the biggest barrier for them to get there is actually the employers. So not having the right programs or the right recruitment tactics or not having a healthy and diverse pipeline themselves or not having supportive HR practices. It's probably the biggest barrier that I see for that next step beyond K-12. But I think having girls, especially in the K-12 system with really robust career literacy is the answer to being able for them to not feel like they can't do whatever they want to pursue. How do you, how do, you do you maintain contact with a lot of the girls or do
5: they some of them come back and, and are mentors to the newer mm-hmm.
7: students? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we track our kiddos to so just see where they choose to go for post-secondary and what their options are. Um, as well as, yeah, they that's part of, you know, the community that we build is that you need to give back and, and support the community that you came from. And so even though a lot of them go on to do these amazing things, we do ask that they come back and speak to younger girls, come back and share their experience, share their difficulties, you know, practice those interview skills, practice those interpersonal skills um, in a safe space where they, you know, again, can feel connected to each other.
5: That's great. I love that. Um, when you find with your partnerships, when there's uh, when there's feedback from some of the, those girls of the obstacles, do you provide that guidance and advice back to,
7: or, you know, make recommendations back to those organizations? Yeah, I would say that's one of the number one pieces is that you can't just, it can't be one way sort of upskilling, right? We can't just upskill our kiddos and our students. We also have to work with industry partners hand in hand to say, here's the type of questions that you want to ask to engage girls, right? You don't want to assume that, <clears throat> excuse me, every summer, everyone's summer is full of like, you know, I always say pools and popsicles and, you know, that they have a really cheerful home life and that they're traveling across the country with their parents. That's not the case for most of the families that we work with. And so asking them questions like, you know, what are you most excited about this summer when they're probably taking care of siblings and trying to work a couple of jobs isn't really how you engage them. So start asking them about their skill sets, start asking them about their knowledge base, start asking them about what you know, their passions and strengths are and what they love to do. Um, it just, you know, just some simple tweaks to how adults and in industry can interact, especially with girls, is really, it makes the biggest difference in the world. And that's ultimately the goal, right, is that these young women can walk away and their experience gap is less and that they have a powerful network to lean into when they're looking for that next opportunity.
5: That's so great. So one of the things I had in my career was the lack of mentors. There just weren't enough mentors or resources to get the help. And, you know, as you know, you, you know, there's a room full of 20 people. There might be two women. And, you know, instead of leaning on each other, you know, we're, we're trying to over each other to make sure that everybody, you know, I'm the one that's being noticed. Notice me, not her, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's unfortunate, but that's the reality of of being in tech when you're a woman.
7: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's definitely that competitive piece. And so, you know, there's a balance with young girls, especially to teach them to have their voice and to have a competitive edge, but not, you know, necessarily be somebody who's going to tear down someone else to get there. And so, again, just a lot of work on those interpersonal skills, those collaborative skills um, is really, really important. And it does matter. You have to explicitly teach them and model them. That's great. So
5: tell me about yourself. What do you do? You know, you're running this company, two companies. Um, what do you do to maintain balance in your life and maintain a good
7: mental health? So so you can be a mentor to others. <laughs> yeah. I mean, besides, you know, once in a while, some probably trashy TV and binge watching <laughs> mindless shows, um, I think staying active. I mean, I live lucky enough to live in Colorado. So getting out in nature, walking and doing a lot of reading and recently have taken up some more executive coaching in terms of just connecting with peers. And you just forget how important that is. And I think as CEOs, oftentimes we think we can do everything or we should do everything alone. And so it's been really helpful this year for me to find some peer networks to just lean into and, you know, bounce ideas off of and share some struggles and challenges. And it's grown me professionally quite a bit. So those are some pieces and I have three crazy teenagers, so they keep me very grounded and remind me, um, you know, of what's relevant these days. So that's that's how I goodbye.
5: Yeah. And keeping keeping uh, teens, your own teens, mental health is another right balance, which is because I have two teen boys as well. And uh, making sure, especially in the last three years with everything that's mm-hmm. going on, making sure their, their mental health is good. You know, I literally ask my kids all the time. It's like, "How's your mental health? Is it good? Are you doing? Yeah, are you doing well?"
7: <laughs> yeah, I think it's absolutely vital. I mean, just checking in and having those candid conversations, and you know, they they deal with so much. And I, you know, I think every generation says that, but I think there is so much that they have to process through. And um, yeah, I think those check ins are so crucial. So sure. So
5: so, how did you? You know, you you started a school and you started two companies, how did you, what are some of the things that you had to overcome, like that you had to learn? Because I'm sure it was all new to you. And so where did that drive come from to to just be like, I know nothing about starting a STEM school, but I'm going to do it anyway. Where's that motivation come from?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think there's just, you know, people, there's a deep passion um, for this work. You have to, right? Education's not something that you jump into, you know, thinking that you're going to make a ton of money or, or anything like that. So there's this kind of deep resonating passion to influence that system. Um, and I've really always been motivated by that. I think also, I'll be honest, you know, I grew up on a ranch here in Colorado and just part of like hard work and perseverance and grit as part of my DNA. And I think that when you don't know something, it's actually, um, a little bit of ignorance is bliss, right? You just jump in and figure it out as you go. And I've been really, really lucky over the years to have the most brilliant teams on the planet to work alongside and the best colleagues to build these visions and companies with. And I'm um, incredibly grateful for that. But I think, you know, the challenge to make a difference in this world is is something that we should all care about. And, you know, education and intersecting them with industry just happens to be mine um and so any way that I can do that but yeah I mean the learning curve is every day I've been doing this for almost 25 years and every day I learn something new I get knocked down a little bit have to dust myself off and you know figure things out so it's it's definitely a learning journey all the time
5: that's great well, you're doing it and it's fantastic i love it and i'm just gonna so stem school and you're in colorado so am i so where nice. um my sons went to the school the stem school in lucent were you a part of that oh, at all
7: nice yeah no not a part of that but yes i know exactly where that is and yeah that's awesome so yeah yeah it's cool mm-hmm, absolutely well
5: Fantastic! I love anything tech, so it's been really great having you here. Thank you. Um, what advice would you give to the audience um, for for anything business, personal, you know, tech?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think my advice is is usually always kind of the same, which is if you are an industry titan, or if you're a community advocate, or if you have this really amazing story, to just take time to share that with somebody younger, right, with the generation below you and to inspire that next generation to, to by telling your story. And I think that power of mentorship cannot be stressed enough. And so I just always encourage people to share a little bit about who they are in their story because you have no idea what a difference it will make especially if someone can now see themselves in a possibility that wasn't there before. And I think that's really important
5: you've one last question just came up when you when you share your story with such a young um, age group, how do they resonate? Do you think they resonate with someone who's older, perhaps,
7: or someone who's been through it? I think they do. I mean, I think it depends. You know, everybody makes connections in different ways. But having done this work, you know, over and over, I can t- I can share you know a million stories of especially young girls in second or third grade that were inspired by any age of you know mentor and just seeing themselves like I didn't realize I could do that I didn't realize that that was a possibility Oh my gosh that's very similar to me I you know I want to learn more about that and I think we rely so much on just that immediate community and family structure to provide that support but there's a much you know broader and wider um, audience out there to share your story and I just I think that's so important but they're definitely inspired I mean it's changed students' trajectories just
0: by spending time. um. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mike Velarde Show. I'm excited to welcome the program. Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, good, Neil. How are you? Doing fantastic. What is new? Trump going to jail? Is that close? What's happening?
8: That's not going to happen. Listen, that case is so weak, okay? That case is so weak and so politically motivated that anybody can see through that.
0: Oh, really? So like kind of get our audience of what's happening, why they think, I guess the side, the other side thinks Trump's going to jail.
8: Well, here's what happened. They're trying to take a misdemeanor crime that has a statute of limitations of two years. And now it's six years later, converted into a felony by saying it was an overt act. And that overt act was that they falsified business records. The problem with that theory is twofold. One the the, um, the federal campaign commission found there was absolutely no crime involved. They have documents showing that Trump didn't even know about it from Michael Cohen. Now they want to use Michael Cohen as their star witness, although there's there's so much documentation from prior years saying that he didn't that Trump had no knowledge. So it would be the weakest case possible. It won't make it to a trial. This is just pure political theater. That's all this is.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Rob Show. I'm excited welcome to welcome for him, Rob Rob, what's going on, man? How are you?
6: How you doing?
0: Good, fantastic. What are we? What is happening? Is things just continue to get crazier?
6: Well, things are continuing to fall apart for what was the greatest nation in the history of the world. Uh, I'd say most, you know, just to pick up on last week, most likely the first domino to fall is going to be the economic system in this once great nation. Basically, as I discussed last week, it's a debt-based system. It's 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 basically a a large-scale loan sharking operation. Our economy is, I mean, we borrow from the Federal Reserve. They create money out of nothing and lend it to the banks and the government at interest. That's ultimately what the system is. Um, So when you hear all this stuff about bond yields and long-term and short-term and all this other stuff, not that it doesn't have a place, but underneath it all, that's the thing. And I always think of that scene out of They Live a Rodney Piper puts the glasses on and he's looking through the magazine, he goes to the magazine stand and all the verbiage and the complex crafts and it just he puts the glasses on and it just says obey and consume and all this sort of thing. Mally and reproduce and, and all these other subliminal messages that are right there on the pages. So basically we're getting to a point where we just can't handle the debt anymore. And the debt to GDP ratio, which should be below a hundred percent for sure. Uh, we're now at 109% and don't forget that's the online deficit. I mean, I think it's like $31 trillion at this point and total GDP, which is the measure of total economic activity in the country for the years like 20 20 something million 28 million something like that so it's like it's like 109 110% and that's a very bad uh, omen for what's going to happen to the economy so the economy will collapse it's just a matter of time the banking system they keep raising interest rates and basically what's happening there is a lot of these banks have invested in what's called long term bonds or long term treasuries at rates of like 1% and then keep raising short-term interest rates